You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, Redeemer. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Thank you, Debbie, for reading our scripture this morning. Good morning to the kids that are in here with us this morning, too. Um, We just want to tell you guys, we're thankful that you're in here with us this morning. We love you guys very much. We're happy to have you uh, in here with us uh, as well. Uh, I hope that I've met you, but if I uh, have not, my name is Rick Bowers. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's always a privilege, a joy, and an honor to get to uh, stand up here and to walk through God's word with you. You know, it is a life-giving thing for us to open up the word of God and to look inside it and to see the promises that God has for us. And that's exactly what we get to do this morning. Uh, This morning, we get to particularly look at a promise of hope. If you haven't already taken out your Bibles, go ahead and do that this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. We're going to be looking at these two verses, 24 and 25. Uh, Again, a promise of Christian hope. As most of you guys know, we've been walking through Romans chapter 8 since the start of the year, and there are probably several reasons why Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. But of all those reasons, one thing about this letter is certain. There's really no other place where the apostle so clearly unpacks all the wonderful and complex realities about the gospel for our lives. And here in chapter 8, Paul describes in detail uh, what it means to have a transformed new life, a new identity in Christ Jesus. And part of that identity that we'll see today is hope. Hope is a word and an idea that we throw around a lot. It's a word that we maybe even overuse, kind of like love, right? I love tacos and I also love my wife. So we throw hope around in a similar manner. I uh, hope that my children grow up to be self-functioning adults, right? We hope that the Chiefs might win the Super Bowl, right? We hope that this sermon doesn't take too long so we can get out of here and get to lunch. These are not the kind of hopes that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 8. What he's talking about is something far greater, far bigger, far more impactful and transformative for our life. In fact, this word hope is used five times here in these two verses, 53 times in the New Testament, and 13 times here in this letter to the Roman church. It's clear that hope is integral to the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And today I want us to see that hope is something that as a Christian, is now part of our identity. It's part of who we are. Paul is pointing us to a reality that hope is two things. Two things. Number one, hope is a gift that we receive. A gift given to us by a gracious God. And number two, hope is a posture of the Christian life. It's how we live day by day. If you'll join me in prayer, we will walk through these two verses uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, um, praise you for giving us a living hope. 
in Christ Jesus. Praise you that we haven't been left, that we have been given promises and hope. I ask this morning that you would hear our prayers, that you would open up our minds to consider you and your truths laid before us this morning. Jesus, would you give us eyes to see our hope in you, in your life and death and resurrection. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that for those of us that are full of hope, would you help us to share that with our brothers and sisters in Christ and those that are far from you, those of us that are losing hope, God, I ask that you would meet us just graciously and mercifully. And for those of us who feel like we've just lost hope already, I ask that you would be a sweet comforter to us to remind us that that's not true. Work in our hearts and minds this morning. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, let's look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 24 together this morning. Paul writes these words. He says, for in this hope we were saved. We're going to stop right there this morning. I want us to talk for a second about what it means to be saved into hope. Now, if we know the gospel, that is, if we know that we are sinners and we have separated ourselves from a loving relationship with God, the God of the universe, by our sin... And we can't recover that distance. We can't make up for that on our own. We need somebody else to do that. God's done that through Jesus. If we know that gospel, then we know that Jesus saves, right? Jesus saves. He saves us. He rescues us. He delivers us from harm, from God's wrath and from our brokenness. He restores us and he's making us whole. But that word, that idea, saved, is kind of like a package of Oreos, okay? A package of Oreos all together is wonderful. Give me a package of Oreos. That's a gift you guys can give me. Package of double stuffed Oreos. I'll take that any day. And all together, that is a wonderful thing. But if you open up that package, there's not just one giant Oreo in there. There are lots of other little Oreos inside there. Multiple delicious truths, or multiple delicious creamy chocolatey (laughs) cookies and wonderful goodness for us. Salvation is the same thing. All together as an idea, it's wonderful, but we can open up that idea and find all kinds of delicious truths for our life. All kinds of tasty, tasty treats and truths about our identity in Christ Jesus. And there are three of those that I want to talk about this morning to help us understand what Paul is talking about when he says, for in this hope, we were saved. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we can say three things immediately. We can say that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. We've talked about all three of these truths over the past few weeks as we've walked through Romans chapter 8. So we're going to recap quickly here, starting with the very first one. We have been saved. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, that action happens somewhere in time. Maybe that was a moment for you. Maybe it was a moment in your life and you can pinpoint that moment and you can pinpoint that second in your life. Or maybe it was a process for you. 
And you don't know exactly when you placed your faith in Jesus, but you know that you trust him. You know that he's real. You know that everything he says is true. I was reminded recently by a sister here of a Puritan quote that says, maybe you're not exactly sure when the sun rose, but you're indeed confident that it shines. Maybe that's your story. Whichever it was, a moment or a journey, it's happened in time. And because of your faith, the penalty of sin has been removed from you. It's been placed upon the cross of Jesus. Jesus took your penalty. This is what we call justification. Faith in Jesus justifies you in the eyes of God. The penalty of sin is removed from you. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You guys remember the beautiful sermon Jordan preached on that for us. No condemnation, none. You have been saved and nothing will ever change this. God's not going to lose you. He's not going to forget about you. He's not going to all of a sudden remove that justification from you and punish you a whole lot because of your sin. You have been saved. Jesus has saved you if you have placed your faith in him. Now, that's one of the tasty truths of salvation. Here's the second one this morning. We are also being saved day by day. We are putting to death sin in our life through the power of the spirit living inside of us. Just like a potter works on a vessel to shape it, we are being formed by the spirit of God. We are being purified. Our imperfections, our sin, it's being destroyed. Sometimes this is hard. Sometimes this hurts. This is what we call sanctification. And as long as you're living, you're being sanctified. Until you draw your last breath, you are constantly being sanctified. You're battling the power of sin in your life. This is a cycle that happens, and it looks a little bit like this. You face a temptation to sin, whatever that temptation might be for you. Maybe it's fudging your timesheet at work. Maybe it's telling a lie. Maybe it's hiding something from someone. You face the temptation to sin, and the Spirit stirs up inside of you and says, don't do that. That is sinful. That is against God. Do not walk towards the darkness like that. Walk towards the light. Stay away from that. It's not good for you. It's not healthy for you. It's not honoring to God. And in that moment, you have a choice. Am I going to sin? Or am I not going to sin? So you choose. One choice will begin to harden your heart. One choice will begin to soften your heart. One will lead to conviction and hopefully repentance. The other will lead to an increased sensitivity to the way the spirit works in your life. Now remember... You've already been saved. God is not ditching you every time that you sin, but sin has consequences, very real consequences for your life and for your walk with Christ. And so we go on, sometimes two steps forward in that walk, sometimes 10 steps back, but journeying on towards holiness in Christ Jesus. That's what it means that we're still being saved. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Through God's Spirit working in us, we're putting to death sin 
in our life. So we have been saved. We are being saved. And another one of those wonderful truths, we will be saved. This is the truth that Jordan unpacked for us in his sermon last week, a future state of humanity in which we will be glorified. The presence of sin will be completely removed. Everything broken, put back together. All things made new. All sin gone. All tears wiped away. No disease, no sickness, no cancer, no miscarriage, no car accidents, no heart attacks, no war, no famine, no flood. Gone. Creature and creation fully restored. Everything that we have broken will be made beautiful again when Christ Jesus returns. Sanctification, being saved, will be over in that moment. You will be glorified, but it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, we will be saved. This is the tension of the Christian life. The penalty of sin has been removed from us. We still battle the power of sin in our lives, but we don't have to do that forever because one day Jesus will remove the presence of sin. And it's that promise, the promise that we will be saved that Paul is talking about when he says, for in this hope we were saved. Paul has a forward look in his eye at this moment. Our salvation guarantees us the entire box of Oreos, but inside that are promises for today and some promises for tomorrow. Being saved into hope means that we know for certain a day of redemption is coming, and we look to it with hope. This is the hope that we're saved into, a beautiful future with Jesus Christ in the new creation without sin or its effects. Okay. Let's look back to our text now. Stay in verse 24 with me. For in this hope we were saved. Talk through that. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Paul's playing at an argument here a little bit, and he's also helping us define Christian hope. Christian hope is a gift that we receive through our faith in Christ Jesus. Think of it this way. At the moment of salvation, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, God hands you a gift. In his grace, he hands you a beautifully wrapped present. You don't deserve this gift. That's why it's grace. You don't deserve it, but he hands it to you. And what do you say? Can I open it? Can I open this gift, God? And God says, not yet. Not yet, but one day I will let you. And when you do, every fear, every doubt, every feeling you've ever had that you aren't enough, every harsh word ever spoken over you, every moment of temptation, every tear you've ever cried, every mistake that you've ever made, every sin that you ever struggle with, when I let you open this box, they're gone. There will not be one moment of struggle that you have endured. Not one moment of pain that you have walked through that will not unravel to reveal beauty the moment that I let you open this box. And then you say, 
Well, if I can't open it yet, God, if I can't actually see what's in it, what do I do with it? And God says you live with hope in it. See, the instrument by which we're saved is faith. But the condition that we're saved into is hope. Now, of all the things God could give us, why give us hope? As we wait here, as we live this life, why give us hope? It's a good question. I'm glad you guys asked that question. It's because the gift of Christian hope helps us endure a broken world. Let me explain. There is no other hope like Christian hope. The broken world will tell you to hope in certain things, but they're nothing compared to this hope. If you were to look up the definition of hope in modern psychology, here's what you would find. The perceived capability to derive pathways to desired goals and motivate oneself via agency thinking to use those pathways. In other words, Hope is the belief that your future will be better than your present, and only you have the ability to make that happen. This is the hope that the world extends out and offers you. Do you want it? Do you want that hope? It essentially says you're the only one who can create hope for your future. Is that working out for you okay? Humanity we're wildly incapable of making good things happen now or in our future all by ourselves. No matter what things we place our hope in, they're always going to let us down. Our jobs, that hope ends when the ideal meets the real and we don't get the job we want. Or when we're let go in a restructuring. Or when the person in the cube sitting next to us gets the promotion over us that we actually really deserved. Our relationships, what happens to that hope when the wonderful man you married sits on the couch in the evenings instead of helping you take care of the kids or do chores around the house? Where's the hope when the person you thought was your best friend is now off at a distance, judging everything you do, talking about you behind your back, stirring up controversy and tension in your life? Our own abilities? What, hope, what happens to that hope when despite your best efforts, the very best that you can muster up at your job or your marriage or your parenting or your schooling or your diet or your walk with Jesus, you fail again and again and again and again? What happens when you look in the mirror and you just don't like what you see? We cannot secure hope on our own. And this is the idea that the world offers us. Worldly hope says, I desire something, but I have zero certainty that it will actually arrive. Worldly hope is nothing more than calculated risk. It is base level uncertainty. But that is not the hope that God offers us. Because the hope that God gives is not dependent on you or me. The hope that God gives is dependent on him. Our hope 
is dependent upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our hope is dependent upon his death on a Roman cross. Our hope is dependent upon him rising from that death. Our hope is dependent upon the God of the Bible who never has broken a promise and never will break a promise. Those things are certain. You can bet on them. Our hope is not dependent upon the creature who just keeps making a mess of things. The hope that the world offers is a sad replacement for the hope that God offers us in Christ Jesus. And worldly hope has no chance of helping us endure this day-to-day brokenness that we live in. I'll take a shot in the dark and I'll assume that there have been, and if not, there will be, Moments in your life that hurt so badly, it's all you can do to draw another breath. How does worldly hope get you through that moment? It can't. It can't. It is only the gift of Christian hope that anchors our soul to the life-giving presence of Jesus Christ that sustains us when everything else around us is crumbling. God gives us hope in the future so that we can endure present moments of pain. The Apostle Peter talks about hope in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're not going to go there today, but uh, if you've taken notes, if you're a note taker, it's 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. It's in those verses that Peter reminds us of the things that will be certain in this human life. Do you know what those certainties are? Grief, trials, and testing. Earlier here in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul calls them sufferings. He says, these present sufferings. What are your present sufferings, Redeemer? What are yours? Is there sin that you're entangled with, that you're hiding, that you're wrestling through day after day? Is there relational carnage in your life? Do you have relationships, friendships, family, And it's just tension all the time. And you don't even know how to solve it. Children that pass away too early. Parents that die too suddenly. Sickness that just won't leave. Finances that just won't add up. Obstacles that just seem to come and come and come. One right after the other and on and on. In grief and trials and suffering and testing. We live. We exist. This is the reality of the human condition. Sin has broken everything, and if it's not already broken, we're actively destroying it. And it's precisely for this reason that God gives us this beautifully gift-wrapped present of hope. And do you know how God knows that we need that? Do you know how he knows that we need that? Because the God of the Bible knows exactly what it means to be you. He's walked in your shoes. He knows the human condition. He knows your temptations because he's been tempted. 
He knows what it means to weep over the death of a friend because he's done it. He knows what it means to have someone you trust deeply betray you because he's felt it. He knows the agony of physical pain that never seems to let up because he's gone through it. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned and misunderstood and mocked and shamed because he's lived it. It is the humanity of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, that makes it possible for God to know exactly what it feels like to be us. He doesn't just imagine what it is to be human. He's actually felt it, Redeemer. And he knows that in those moments when you can barely draw another breath, you desperately need hope, the hope that he offers you. Hope is a gift that God gives us so that we can endure a broken world. And hope is the posture that he invites us into as well. Look back at the passage with me, verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patience. We can't fully see what's inside that gift gift-wrapped box that God gives us, but we can have hope in it, right? Paul talks about this a little bit in 2 Corinthians as well, that we don't lose heart, but then that we're looking to things not that we can see, but actually to things that are unseen. And so we wait for that hope with patience, with perseverance. We don't lose heart, but how? In our day-to-day ordinary life, what does this actually look like? How do we persevere? First, You don't do it alone. I'm not going to unpack this promise. We'll do this in the next few weeks as we move through the rest of chapter 8. But we're not alone as we wait. God's spirit lives inside of us and gives us what we need to persevere, to wait. And he also gives us this, the church. We'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. What I want to talk about now is what it looks like in our everyday ordinary life to live with patience perseverance, not losing heart in a hope to come. And to help us see that, as your pastor, I'm going to be a little transparent for you this morning. I'm going to be a little honest for you this morning. I'm going to lay a really cold, hard confession out before you. My name is Rick Bowers, and I am a recovering pessimist. Those of you guys who know me closely may question my honesty when I say recovering, but I am recovering. God is constantly at work in me. As a, as a recovering pessimist, I have the unique ability to crush any dream in about three seconds. That's all it takes. I really feel like God's given me a, a gift of oversight, detail, maybe some execution and some management. And when you tell me your dream or when my own dream whirls up inside my head, I move 10 steps ahead and I can see all the reasons why that dream is just going to fail. If you guys see my wife and daughter today, give them a hug. It's not easy to live with daddy, the dream crusher. As any pessimist knows, the trick is to call yourself a realist because the real world's awful anyway. Maybe, maybe. But if we believe the gospel, here's the thing, church. If we believe the gospel, we know that that junk isn't true. It's just not true. And as followers of Jesus, God invites us out of a pessimistic, fearful posture in life. But 
Reality also isn't just rainbows and butterflies. Uh, An optimist may prance around with a smile on their face and their head in the clouds, and they may say, everything is just going to work out. It's going to be just fine. It's going to work out. They may even think that positive thinking and positive speech can change a future outcome, that somehow you can manifest your future by speaking in a positive way. It's not true. Both of these postures fail us. They're not Christ-like. They're not centered on the gospel. And they put their faith in the wrong thing. The optimist places faith in some arbitrary idea of good, maybe themselves. The pessimist places faith in fear. I know things, bad things are going to happen. I got to control the situation. But the God of the Bible invites us into a completely different posture, into a posture with hope flowing through our veins, a posture that helps us endure with patience, not optimism, not pessimism, but hoptimism. Hoptimism is when we have a confident expectation that God is working for our good in every situation and in every circumstance. Now pay attention, this doesn't mean that every situation, every circumstance that we'll be in feel good. We live in a broken world. Of course it won't. But no matter the situation, God has first promised us that we're not alone. Second, he's promised us that he has already worked for our good. We've been saved to secure a future for us. We will be saved. And he is presently working for our good. We are being saved. This is what the hoptimist knows to be true. And here's the thing. That posture allows us to be present in every moment in our lives, not running from them. Do you hear me? Not running from them. Present. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Not paralyzed by fear. Not focused on some arbitrary idea of good. This posture allows us to be very present with the realistic expectation that God will come through today or tomorrow. The hoptimist can grieve, but he doesn't have to grieve as somebody who's lost hope. The hoptimist can be concerned, but she doesn't have to be laden with worry and fear. The hoptimist can be positive, but not as one who's foolish. The hoptimist can be expectant that God will bring good out of a hopeless situation because that is constantly what the God of the Bible does read. It's constantly what the God of the Bible does. The hoptimist finds refuge in the promises of God made real through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our faith in Jesus drives our ability to have a posture like this. We can have hope in any moment because God is working. Even if it doesn't go my way, he's working. And even if tragedy strikes, he's still working and he secured a future for me. Hear me. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. It's faith in Jesus alone which secures hope for us. As we close up this morning, I have one more confession for you before we go. I didn't make this term up, optimism, I borrowed it, 
There's a great book by a pastor named Craig Hamilton. The book is Wisdom and Leadership. And I'd like to share a quote from this book with you as we close up here this morning. Hoptimism allows us to confront the most brutal facts of our current circumstances and still have a sure and certain hope for the future based on evidence that we will prevail. Hoptimism looks evil and failure and disappointment and problems and pain square in the face and right in the eyes and says, you will not win. You do not win. I have seen the future in Jesus and it is resurrection. You will not win because my God is bigger and my king is alive and so I refuse to lose. Our hope is not based on the shape of our circumstances because if you're measuring your circumstances, then you're measuring the wrong thing. Our hope is based on the size of our God and on the heartbeat of our king and our king is alive. It's only a person who's been given that gift of hope by God that can say something like this. It's only through faith in Jesus that this becomes ours. It's my prayer, Redeemer, for you guys and for me, that no matter what our present circumstances are, no matter what situation we're in in life, that our prayers and our plea and our posture before God can look really similar to Job who when he found himself in desperate circumstances, he cried out to God, but never took his eyes off of the hope that he had in God. These are his words. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, You have not left us. In moments of pain and struggle and weariness and failure and difficulty, it may feel that way. I just ask that you would even in this moment restore our souls with hope. A hope that can look to the future and live present in our circumstances and the things we face today. I hope that's unwavering and strong and steady and anchored not in something arbitrary, but in the work that Jesus has already done for us. God, if, if we sit in here this morning and we can't say that we have that hope, I just ask that you would open up our hearts before you. We love you. We trust you. We thank you. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.